Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Nehemiah 10, 28 through 39. Nehemiah 10, 28 through 39. Please follow along with me as I read. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year in the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and the first of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites, the for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. 
For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that indeed we can be called your people and you are our God. Lord, we sung of the grace that you've lavished on us through your son Jesus, the sacrifice that was necessary to cover our sin. Lord, there may be some here this morning who are really struggling And their walk with you, perhaps they don't even have a relationship. And I pray that for all of us, the words of your precious scriptures will speak loud and clear. Guide us as we go to the text. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Nehemiah 10. Some would say Nehemiah 9, because 938, the last of verses there, 938. 8 is also 10.1 in some versions. So we're in chapter 10, though, of an English version of Nehemiah. So if you would turn there, it's the text you just heard, at least a portion of it. At the start of Congress in January, on every odd-numbered year, the Senate performs a solemn and festive constitutional rite that is as old as the Republic. I do solemnly swear... And you know the oath that I will support and defend the Constitution, and on it goes. That's not the original version, though. In 1789, when Congress first met, it was only 14 words. It was simply, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support the Constitution of the United States. However, in 1861, there was concern over traitors in the camp, so to speak, And so Congress passed a very robust oath that senators had to make on July the 2nd, 1862. And yes, it affirms your allegiance to the Constitution, but it says, furthermore, that you've not been engaged in criminal behavior or disloyal conduct. And if so, it states that you will not receive a salary, novel idea, right? And those who swear falsely would be prosecuted for perjury, and could face imprisonment. Well, that oath was then changed again in the late 1800s back to the variation that we know today. Oaths are important. They swear allegiance. And in Nehemiah 10, we've seen this development. We have in chapter 8, the word of God is read by Ezra and the priest. Revival breaks out. They rehearse, the Israelites do, in chapter 9, the history of Israel. In fact, we looked at this chart last week. Let's just look at it again just to remind ourselves. As they rehearse Israel's history, it's, it's a downward spiral. In fact, many would argue it gets worse as you move further into chapter 9. And that's Israel's disobedience. Then it goes to punishment. Then there's misery and they repent and God shows compassion and mercy. We saw that time and time again last week in chapter 9. At the end of 9... There's an understanding, no, we need to get our act together. 
We need God to deliver us. And so the Israelites make this oath, which we see here in chapter 10. I didn't have Claudia read the first part of the chapter, but it's quite a laundry list. 84 names are mentioned. Did you see who leads the pack? Look at it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, Nehemiah the governor. So Nehemiah signs it, then the priest, then there's a set of Levites and family leaders, a total of 84. They're saying, yes, we as leaders of the Israelites will stand firm. This is our allegiance to the Lord. Then we pick up here at verse 28 of chapter 10, where the entire congregation, the people, join in. Notice what the text says. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, all of those who didn't sign it, who didn't put their seal upon it, says, and and don't miss this, it says, from the neighboring, they separated themselves from the neighboring people because of the law of God, which they heard in chapter 8, they rehearsed in chapter 9, now they want to live by it. And it says, with their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all whom are able to understand. God holds those who can comprehend with that level the revelation he's given. And so here you have a host of people say, yes, we affirm what the leaders have just declared, that we will adhere to the law, to the covenant. Now notice, it says in verse 29, the town leaders entered into a, and the text says, curse oath. And you go, what, what is that? Uh, it's similar to what the Congress stated in 1862. It was a curse oath. If you make this pledge and you don't keep it, there's a problem. The same is seen here. The curse oath is really an oath with penalties. You, you don't want to enter into this lightly. In fact, uh, one scholar points out that to recognize the justice of incurring wrath of heaven should they depart from the commitment they have now given. It's similar to the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who trespass against us. Implication, if you don't forgive others, the Lord will not forgive you. It's huge, right? Well, the same idea here. If you don't keep this oath, God is going to judge you, and you understand that. You've, You've placed yourself under it. Now, this isn't new in the life of Israel. Deuteronomy, if you're writing down and taking notes, Deuteronomy 28. Listen to these words. If you indeed obey the Lord your God and you're careful to observe his commandments that I'm giving you, the Lord says, that I will elevate you above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come to you in abundance. That's what they just rehearsed. When they walked in obedience, God was blessing them and at times when they repented. But God shows mercy, he shows compassion, he shows forgiveness. But Deuteronomy goes on to state in Deuteronomy 28, but if you ignore the Lord your God and you are not careful to keep all his commandments and statutes, I will send a herd of bats. No, I'm gonna give you today and all these curses will come upon you. I'm gonna pull out a paddle. If you don't obey, this is the curse. And so this is what we see in Nehemiah 10. It's called an oath curse. We, we don't obey, God will judge us. And I love, notice what they state here in verse 29. Was given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commandments. They know the significance. In fact, the law of God is mentioned twice in this verse. 
It's what's being highlighted. It goes back to Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1. Nehemiah said, if you return to me and keep my commandments. This is, the Lord, this is Nehemiah talking to the Lord and saying, hey, don't you remember what you said to us? If we keep your commandments, we do them. Though we are outcasts, you will gather us and bring us to the place that you have established your name. They know all this. They've rehearsed it. That's why they're confessing their sins in chapter 10 or 9. And now they come to this point saying, okay, we've confessed our sin. This is where we stand. I think this is key. We read Nehemiah and you say, wow, 52 days they build a wall. Isn't that fantastic? This is more than about a wall. This is about establishing the Lord's name through faithfulness and obedience. Whether it is your job, whether you're at school, it's your home, or it's CBF. It's not about a building, a contract, closing a sale, high grades at school, or the trophy. It's about establishing the name of the Lord. I've had many students. I told them it's a sin for an A student to, to get a C. It's a sin for a C student to get an A. And they all kind of look at me. So the, the Lord isn't asking. He's asking you just do your best at what he's placed before you. That's all. And As a parent, that's what we ask of our kids, right? So what? It was a B mice. You did, did you do your best? You worked hard? Yes. Well, well done. That's what the Lord does. All, that's all I ask. We're not comparing ourselves. And he says that the Israelites who've, who've been brought back from the land of Babylon under the Persian Empire, he's saying, hey, this is to establish my name. We are here to glorify the Lord. That's true worship. It's not based upon emotions or setting the right mood. True worship is about seeking to live out what the Lord has revealed in his scriptures. It's God's word which informs us of the character of God, but how we are to behave as a people of God. And that's what they've rehearsed. That's what they've understood. And that's what brings them to this oath. Now, the oath has four major categories, and we could divide it differently, scholars debate. But I, I'm going to divide it into four this morning as we look at this. There's four areas. And you ask, why these four areas? Little secret, this is where they lack. <laughs> this is where they're struggling. This is their, their problems. And this, they know if I'm gonna swear allegiance to the Lord, these are the areas that we need to lay before the Lord's feet. The first of these is you're going to see is mixed marriages. We'll get to that in a minute. That raises questions all the time, right? Keeping the Sabbath, we'll get to that one. The temple tax, and which is the longest section of it is the uh, bringing these offerings and tithes. Now, you'll see that I linked it with the Mosaic Law. If you don't know what the Mosaic Law is, this is the commandments that the Lord gave to the Israelites via Moses. This is what is to govern them much of what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books, lays out the Mosaic Law. It was a covenant with the Israelites in a time and place. And I would argue it's been fulfilled in Christ. But at this time frame, this is the, what God demanded of his people. And as we will see, this is the areas where they truly have lacked. Some of the points aren't directly found in the law that you'll see here in Nehemiah 10. 
And you go, oh, we got a problem. No, no, they're trying to capture the spirit of the law. They're trying to understand, we as people, this is how we're to behave under this larger umbrella of the Mosaic law. And so, let's go to the first of these. And it says in verse 30, we will not give our daughters in marriage to the neighboring peoples. They're not as good looking, right? I don't know. No, that's far more than this. In fact, once as you hear this, you think, wait a minute, this is a, the making of another West Side story, right? Uh, we're not prohibiting marriage bliss based upon social status or race. What's the problem? Why would they not allow, or why are they making this oath that we're not going to give our children to marry the local yokels and they can't marry us? What's the deal? What's, what's going on here? Well, this goes back to the Mosaic Law, because under the Mosaic Law, it states in Deuteronomy 7, listen to what the Lord states, when the Lord your God brings you to the land that you're going to occupy and forces out many nations before you, and the list is given, Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Parasites, these seven nations, he says, and he delivers them over to you, you must not intermarry them. Do not give your daughters or sons to take their daughters for your sons. Why? He gives us the answer. It's not because he thinks they're not as worthy. No, they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. The danger, the issue is purity. They're going to marry a Canaanite who worships a Baal. The next thing you know, the kids are worshiping Baal. Or worse yet, well, it's about as bad, right? There's syncretism. They're worshiping Yahweh and Baal. Saturdays, it's Yahweh. Friday, it's Baal. The Lord takes seriously, don't miss this, his, purity, his, his holiness. People that follow the Lord are to be set apart. They're not to be tainted with sin. And that's what he's gone to great lengths, the Lord has, to ensure under the Mosaic law that the Israelites stay separated, stay set apart from the local yokels. Sadly, in Nehemiah's day, and we're going to see this in chapter 13 as well when we get there, the Israelites were pursuing interracial marriages to garner political gain or economic advantage. They were political moves. And they've interpreted the Mosaic Law. They didn't just confine it to the seven nations. They now have expanded it to all peoples who live in the land. Again, it's not racially motivated. It's theologically motivated. There are Gentiles who become God-fearers who are brought into the camp. Ruth, the Moabite. I mean, good grief. She's the grandmother of Jesus if you go through the lineage, right? I mean, she's brought in. But the danger, again, is that the enticement of the world from a spouse, a marriage vow will become less than one's oath to the Lord. And this is very, very important. Kind of reminds me of the Little Rascals. Remember the Little Rascals? Spanky and gang start their own club because they weren't invited to the McGillicuddy's girls' birthday party. Remember this? And they made a vow. They made an oath. And the oath goes, do solemnly swear to be a he-man and hate women. Do not play with them or talk to them unless I have to. And especially never fall in love. And if I do, may I die slowly and painfully and suffer for hours 
or until I scream bloody murder. <laughs> Isn't that great? And if you remember, Alfalfa has a problem because he likes Darla. And so making the oath was a problem. And his allegiance to the club was a problem. That's exactly what's going on here. The Lord says, listen, <laughs> the danger is you, my people, marry in with those who do not worship me. The next thing we have is a serious problem. It's similar to the New Testament. Christians are not to pursue marriage with an unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 6 is very clear. Do not become partners with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? And what agreement does Christ have with Satan? Or what does a believer share in common with an unbeliever? If you're married to an unbeliever, you have a mission filled. And we pray very much, 1 Corinthians 7. But if you are not married, a single adult is never to settle. Young people, if you're dating a guy or interested in a guy or a girl who is not passionate about the things of the Lord, you need to run like the wind. Thus saith the Lord, 2 Corinthians. Right? The principles are there. Second Corinthians goes on to state, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that should defile the body, the spirit, and anything that will hinder us from walking in holiness and reverence for God. Wait on the Lord. If you're single, wait. I didn't get married till 36, and I am so grateful for my wife, Lori. It was worth it. But perhaps God has blessed you with the gift of singleness. There's beauty and there's benefit from the gift. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 7. Parents, careful, pushing your child into marriage. You need to applaud the gift of singleness. It is a gift, just as marriage is. Our Savior was single. <laughs> and finally, teenagers, young people, avoid dating evangelism. What I mean by that is dating someone hoping you'll win them over to Christ. Be very careful. So this still applies. Yeah, we don't have the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites. But scripture is very clear in 2 Corinthians. I get alarmed when I hear young people dating someone that's unsaved. Have your friends win them over to Christ. Then we'll go from there, right? But even then, look for young people. Look for a man or a woman who's passionate about the things of the Lord, right? And as parents, grandparents, that's our prayer for our kids, is it not? Lord, bring them someone and in the meantime, protect them from the evil one until that day. Well, I'm starting to really preach and meddle, so we'll go on. They are not, they make the oath. We're not going to have mixed marriages in the camp. Secondly, they're going to keep the Sabbath. Notice in the text, they've, they've figured out a loophole. We will not buy on the Sabbath. Yes, they're not going to do, they've been doing that because they've used neighboring people, non-Jews, to come bring the goods and they say, well, we're not working. <laughs> I love it, right? They, they've learned to navigate. They've employed, again, foreign traders who ensure that no one was being put to work when buying on the Sabbath, yet they still were. They overlooked the law, the spirit of the law, for financial reasons. My grandfather used to own a blueberry farm in northern Indiana, and there was a particular family that, that lived, oh, about... 15 minutes away, it was an Amish family. 
And they would come, and they'd have someone drop them off in their vehicle and then pick them up and take them home in their vehicle. I always thought that was funny because they wouldn't own their own vehicle, but they were sure to use somebody else's to transport the blueberries. A little duplicity, maybe. Um, That's the idea here. You, You say you keep the Sabbath, and yet... You're bringing in all these foreign merchants to, 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 do, to do the selling of goods, etc. They're playing games. And the Israelites know it. And as they set themselves apart in holiness, the second part of the oath, which they distinguish, is we must keep the Sabbath. You know, it's often like sin, isn't it? Uh, it consists of compromises. We fudge on numbers around April 15th. We tell little white lies or utilize Christian cuss words. But we just keep moving it a little bit further. And the Israelites understood they had moved that goalpost so many times. And they said it's time for holiness. It's time for purity. Now remember, we're dealing with a theocracy. Nehemiah is writing to a group under the Mosaic law. And it's a way for God to protect his people we're going to see that with the, the year of Jubilee and the seventh year of, of, of uh, keeping the crops, not tilling the fields. It's a unique period in God's history. And so when we talk about the Sabbath, I know some would say, oh, we, we need to apply it today. Scott Harrell makes this uh, statement. I think it's very important. Sabbath was given at Mount Sinai as a covenantal sign to set Israel apart from the nations. And is not a universal mandate for believers today. Rest, of course, is essential for created life. But a re- redefined Sabbatarianism seems contrary to New Testament directives in which baptism and the Lord's Supper are the covenantal signs of the church, not circumcision nor Sabbath. Now, there's a balance here, isn't there? Unger writes, the only similarity of Sunday to the Sabbath is that it perpetuates under grace the principle that although all redeemed man's time is God's, one-seventh is to be especially sacred and ought to be set aside voluntarily in gratitude for the purpose of worship and ministry to God and meeting one's spiritual needs for rest and recuperation for the body, the soul, and the spirit. There's a balance. We have to be careful, right? My landlady in Scotland, I think I may have shared with some, she was a Sabbatarian. One day we were sitting at the table for breakfast on a Sunday and I knew I had ticked her off and I didn't know what I had done. And I finally said, what did I, is something wrong? She goes, she points over to the other side of the room. And I thought, what is she pointing to? It was the dryer. She was mad that I turned it on on a Sunday. I said, well, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have a shirt to wear to church. <laughs> I needed to dry it. So there's, there's a, we've got to understand the context of Nehemiah 10 as we go through this text It's under this Mosaic law that God has established for his people. Again, we see as well in the text, they allow the land to be left fallow for an entire year after seven years so the poor can be provided for and sustained within the Israelite people. So the oath contains one on marriage, contains one on the Sabbath. The third is the temple tax which we see here in verse 32 and 33. Now, according to Exodus 30, everyone over the age, every male over the age of 20, was expected to give a shekel every time the census was taken. This is a variation, isn't it, in Nehemiah 10. This time, it's 
to be given annually. It's not a full shekel. It's a third of a shekel that's required. And th that custom changes throughout Jewish history. But here we see that it's an annual expectation. As one commentator writes, the money was to be used for a number of the daily and periodic offerings, the maintenance of the temple building itself. Note about this tax that's given, no one is exempt. Did you catch that? This isn't just for the Jewish male. It's not for someone who makes over 100,000 a year. No, no, no. No one is exempt. It doesn't matter your social status, rich, poor, it's one third of a shekel. It's like the VAT in Europe, right? Everyone's gonna pay the same amount. Here it is. Now, keep in mind, we're gonna see tithes and first fruits here coming on down the, the pike here in the text, which would make a difference between what you have and what you don't have. So here we have this text, and it's required, and they have neglected. It's really neglecting the temple, isn't it? And I want you to see that as we move through here, the temple of our God, because it's gonna be mentioned seven times in this brief passage. You, you see, the oath isn't just about them keeping the Mosaic law. Well, yes, and more than that, because the Mosaic law affects the second part of this oath, and that is preserving the temple. Both have fallen under disarray. Both need to be shored up. Both need to be brought into the equation. And so they are called to give. What I love about CBF is we don't need to require a temple tax. Uh, thank you for your generosity. Hearing about the building campaign update just makes my socks roll up and down. Uh, we don't even take a pass an offering plate. And thank you for your generosity as a people. Keep it up. They say there's three litmus tests of a healthy church. The giving, the singing, and the fellowship. And all three are strong. And so the Lord bless you. Keep it up. Well, anyway, let's go back to the oath. Also, finally, the fourth part of the oath, which is the largest section, is providing offerings of any kind. And this, again, is ways to furnish, to provide for the temple. And some of these offerings aren't specified in the Mosaic Law. You can go to the Old Testament back in the first five books and look, you will not find it. But it's what draws this together. There is one interesting one. Did you, did you catch the wood offering that was mentioned in the text? That seems rather odd, but the altar had to burn continually 24-7. This fire was to remain constant under Leviticus 6. That's a lot of wood. I remember us having, growing up, we had a wood-burning stove and you had to make sure you put a large piece of locust or some other hardwood and a big chunk before you went to bed so at least there was something by morning, right? This is the idea. And you remember, prior to the exile, it wasn't the Israelites who were responsible for the wood. It was the Gibeonites. Remember that little group, devious little group? Remember they acted like they were from long away? They were scared of the Israelites, and uh, they tricked the Israelites in forming a treaty. And when it was discovered, they said, ah, okay, fine. You can stay here, but you're going to provide the wood. And that's what they did. Well, now it's fallen on the Israelites. And they're saying, we, we will take responsibility. There's also the first fruits, which you saw several times. If you have a garden or if you have an orchard, you know full well those first fruits, the first vegetables are usually the best. Uh, there, right? And, those are the, mm, and you just can't wait. You know, those were to be given to the Lord. And so these are a variety of ways. And verse 39 ends this section. Look what it says in 1039. 
it says in the last sentence, we will not neglect the temple of the Lord. Time and time again in the, the latter Old Testament writings, the minor prophets, this is the major concern of the, the people of God, neglecting the temple. You could chalk it up for busyness. I mean, after all, they were building a wall or limited resources or certainly difficult times. But the bottom line, as we see in chapter nine and even in chapter eight, it's dealing with sin. Second Chronicles 24 states that after the death of one of the kings of Judah, it says the Israelites abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their ancestors, and served the sacred poles. This is the Ashtaros. They worshiped the foreign gods, these idols, and it says wrath came upon them, yet he sent, the Lord sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord to testify, but they would not listen. And the Israelites, standing in Nehemiah 10, recognize that one of the oath, part of the oath has to be an understanding. We have to take care of the temple. It's a closing statement that really wraps up all that we see. As you look at these four aspects of the oath, if you're taking notes, there are several things to observe. First of all, this was a costly oath, was it not? It's costing them major, or, uh, their best fruits. This is costing them money with a tax. It's all or nothing is the idea. Secondly, the oaths focused on God's reputation. He was the focal point of the worship. Seven times, it's the temple of our God that we are concerned about. Third, the oaths stripped the problems of self-centeredness and greed. Let's boil it down, Right? The reason they didn't want to give, they were lining their pocketbooks. The reason they gave their kids to foreign, foreigners was so they could make more economic networking and uh, connections. No, 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 no. Their oath shows that they needed to be sold out to God. The Lord also needed their heart. In other words, these oaths assumed the need for the Lord to have first place in their sacrifices and in their generosity. And finally, the oaths called for corporate purity. We are in this together. I love that at the first part of that, that it's not just the leaders, but it's the parents and it's the kids. They're all in this together. We have the building dedication. I can't wait. And we could have done it another weekend, but it's when the teens are doing their youth retreat. And we said, no, 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 no. We need all ages present. I remember when they dedicated a church building that I belonged to as a, a child. And I saw all those people standing around praying for that building. And that's what we want. This, by God's grace, this church will serve as a lighthouse if the Lord should tarry, not only in Westfield, but around the globe for years to come. Well, all right, Hophetitz, I wasn't an Israelite. I wasn't standing there in Jerusalem in 440-some B.C. How does this connect with me? Let me give you three things that are in your notes. As a follower of Jesus, no one is exempt from service. Ephesians 4, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Whether it was the Levite or the lumberjack, they were all involved in serving Calvin writes, for, unto, uh, for until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of every good, 
that they should seek nothing beyond him. They will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. If you're here this morning and you don't know about this happiness, you know, there's no peace in your life. You know, this peace with God, stuff you, you, you can't comprehend. It's because you don't have a relationship with him. You're outside the fold. But here's the good news. This isn't an exclusive club. Christ came. He died on a cross. And he did that because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've not done that, today is the day. You don't know what tomorrow holds. Just ask the families in Kentucky. You don't know what life has. Yield your life to him. If you are a follower of Christ, but this idea of, of allegiance to him and undying devotion, that sounds a little radical, doesn't it? Uh, you would rather be content being a spiritual couch potato, <laughs> is what I call it. You know what a couch potato is. In fact, recent studies are showing that physical inactivity is a known risk for premature death Several non-communicable diseases, including heart disease, stroke, high blood pressure, type 2, diabetes, on it goes, it's very discouraging. But far worse than all of that is a spiritual couch potato. Spiritual inactivity carries a far greater risk. Uh, recently, I was reading stats on young people who grow up in the church. If they're not involved in a youth group, it's exponentially most likely they will not engage in church in their 30s. Wow. Church involvement, not just attendance. Getting involved helps strengthen your commitment, helps you grow maturely, mature spiritually, provides a sense of belonging and fellowship. And it, it helps the church grow. And we're in this together. That's what Ephesians is talking about. And I love in Nehemiah 10, they are all there. They're all in. And we need that in the church today. Big C. Second, the, this passage demonstrates clearly that it's a pledge of obedience is meaningless unless there's a tangible outworking. Think about this. You know, in my interactions with believers who are struggling in their faith, nine times out of ten, it seems, it wasn't just happened overnight. They didn't wake up one morning and say, mm, I'm not going to walk in the things of the Lord. No, it's, it's not premeditated. It's not usually spontaneous it's slow, it's subtle to the things of the culture. It, the pressures of the herd mentality, the attractiveness of the world, and over time, they're lured into this. Thinking about, imagine if you get into the car and, and your spouse has helped in the nursery that Sunday, and she pulls out a pacifier and sticks it in, your mouth, in her mouth, right? You go, what are you doing? She goes, this is really good. I really, you know, I like this. It's nice. It matches my outfit. You know, they think I'm cool when I wear it. Feels good on my teeth. You, you laugh. You think that's crazy. But toying with the things of the world is no different. We should be, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, I fed you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready. In fact, you're still not ready. You're still on a milk bottle. You need to be growing in your faith. You need to be jealous about the things of the Lord. You need to be all in. And that's what the Israelites are saying. 
after they've rehearsed time and time again the sin of their forefathers, they don't want to go down that path anymore. We need allegiance that requires tangible, concrete ways. I love this oath. Is that we're going to love Jesus more. Yuck, what does that mean? That's like nailing down jello. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, how are you going to love Jesus? The oath gives tangible ways. And so let me give you a few. Perhaps you need to make an oath to the Lord. I need to guard my eyes on the computer. You've been looking at stuff and you know you would die if an elder walked into your room. <laughs> Perhaps it's the tongue. It's the white lies. Oh, they're so prevalent. You dismiss them. You justify them. Protect yourself or, you know, or even project it onto others. It needs to stop. The gossip. You've got to be in the know. You've got to be the queen or king of social media. Careful. Dating life. Are you willing to make compromises? Anger. Road rage, whether it's in a car or not, right? Giving of resources. The fear of the recession. You just, no way. I've got to hold on to everything. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And then third, God's people should be known as a people of the word. I, I love that this revival in Nehemiah breaks out from scripture being read. Don't miss that. Our obedience to the scriptures is a way of life. It's it's what's expected of those who follow. In chapter 8, the Israelites heard the word. In chapter 9, they rehearsed the word. And in chapter 10, they swore allegiance to the word. In other words, they listened, they valued, they meditated, and they conformed. Psalm 19 May my words and my thoughts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my shelter, my rock, and my redeemer. That can only happen if it's in tune with the words of Scripture. It's in Scripture that serves as a basis for our faith, the guide for our lives, the source of truth about our Lord, the the manual on living a successful spiritual life, the, the means for incredible blessings and the promises for the future. Psalm 19, the ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, even fine gold, 24 carat, right? Sweeter also than honey and drippings on the honeycomb. Nehemiah 10, a group of Israelites, after hearing the word, seeing the depravity among them themselves, bend their knee And they swear an oath of allegiance to the Lord, to the law that he had been given. And we are called to do the same, to to yield our life to this, the scriptures. And so doing, it may mean like the Israelites, we need to hone in on a few areas and say, yeah, Lord, in particular, here, here, and here, I need to lay at your feet. I need to follow. Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Israelites in the sense of their desire here in Nehemiah 10 to walk in obedience. Lord, it's our desire as well as followers of you. Life is not easy. (laughs) It's so convenient at times to make the compromise, whether it's out of fear of what others would think 
whether it's out of convenience. But Lord, as John the Baptist said, he, Christ, must increase, I must decrease. And Father, that is our prayer today. We want to establish your name like the Israelites did in Jerusalem. We want to exalt you, glorify you. And so, Father, help us to do that in Jesus' name.